Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shannon. Hi. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry for having to move that twice. It's just embarrassing, but um, I'm, I apologize. Don't you worry about it. You don't need to at all. Lovely to meet you. And, um, yeah, I fully appreciate a director is the most involved and hectic job in all of the creative industries, I think. I just spoke to Jonas Ackland a couple of weeks ago, and he was like he's on a location scout for a project at the moment. And he was going from country to country to, you know, it's it's full on. Have you been working all weekend then, is, or is it more? Totally. And also, I've just come back from um, Australia, so I was like there, um, seeing family and doing stuff. But then I've come straight back into like full swing, and I'm sort of like just playing catch up. So yeah, yeah, you get it. Juggling jet lag and multitasks. Yeah. I've listened to a bunch of podcast appearances that you've done ahead of today, and I'm thrilled to talk to you. Um, I, I love the movie anyway and wanted to talk to you anyway, but since hearing you talk about cinema particularly, um, I just love your insight and attitude and passion for it. Before we get into any of that, though, what I'm the most fascinated to learn about first is your kind of story, because it says on your Instagram 
that you were born in Africa, right? Raised in Hong Kong. You're Australian, and and I'm gathering from your time zone that you're in the UK right now. So you live in the UK as well. How does all this happen, Shannon? What's the story? Well, it's interesting because my grandmother, so my mum's mum was uh, a travel agent and owned her own travel agency called Beverly's Travel Agency. Classic. <laughs> and um, she and my father, well, he was originally a tour guide in Southeast Asia and Africa, and he gradually worked his way up to um, being a hotelier. And they met in the Nairobi Hilton in Kenya. Wow. That, that's yeah. like a movie in itself, isn't it, that story? It is, yeah. And my mum was there for a travel agency conference that my grandmother couldn't go to, so she sent my mum. My mum's completely not a travel agent. Um, and my dad was there working at the hotel and they fell in love and I was born like seven or eight years later or something. I'm not really sure, actually. <laughs> and then they moved to Asia. We lived in Hong Kong, Singapore, Melbourne, but primarily in Hong Kong is definitely where I grew up. It's what I would call home um, still. And my brother still lives there now. And then I, um, yeah, went to Australia. And yeah, my mum's American actually. So and um, I, I, another I can work here because I've got an Irish part. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, it's good. Like I really um, feel so fortunate to have had such a kind of crazy upbringing living in so many places. I think it's what makes maybe my work um, the way that it is and it's always sort of an outsider's perspective no matter what country or culture i'm in because it's it's usually not my own yeah i mean home is such a you know it's it's a hard thing to define because some people would just say the home is the building that you you know exist day to day in but home for me really is wherever you feel connected to people and culture and, and the locale uh, and you know just character and, and, and like idiosyncrasies that come along with certain regions homes such as a you know a hard thing for me to distill and define yeah i i agree i think um for me it's so much of uh the community of the creative community that i'm surrounded by so for me home is always like every new job that I take on, there's a new collective of creatives that I always fall in love with and um, usually become, you know, lifelong friends. Uh, and for me, home is where my daughter is with me. And um, right now it really does feel like London. I've been so embraced by um, the film and TV world here that uh, I'm just loving it. The film and TV industries in, in both the UK and Australia for me as an outsider seem to share obviously culturally we share loads of similarities as well anyway but those industries really i think there's there's a lot of similarities but before we get into them where does your interest in the arts and and creativity and specifically you know whether it's tv first or or cinema first or just the package of tv and film where does that start for you well i started in tv and it was so exciting to me because I'd come from directing theatre for 10 years. And so I, I, I think I would have been quite happy just doing television until I was offered a film and then I went, oh, this is even better um, in many ways because obviously you get to really immerse yourself for over a year at least on just one project and there's a singular vision and 
There is something very special about making a film for sure. I think I will always though be someone who will continue to direct television in between my film jobs because I go, I, I'm not a writer, so I'm not going to go back and write my next film. I might as well be getting better and better at directing by just continuously directing TV in between film jobs. So I, I, I just love directing back to back really. Um, so as much as people will continue to let me do that, that's what I'll try and do. Well, again, it's it's only a tenuous link because I just spoke to him the other day, but Jonas Ackland's stuff is music videos. So in between hit features, he's just doing constant music video shoots. And he says he loves, you know, flipping and switching from those two because they both obviously, as all creativity does, informs the other and extends your vocabulary and, and your vision. And it's only going to make your work in both fields stronger, isn't it, by doing more, doing both? Yeah, and right now I'm working on the power for Sister Pictures and Amazon, and it's an amazing, huge production, bigger than anything I've ever worked on. So, you know, in television, I'm often getting to play with the bigger um, toys and, and sort of exploring uh, VFX and things that I, I've, I have never done in the, quite the same way with each new project. So I go, I learn so much when I'm doing TV and then apply it to the films that I get to do. What was the film or films or filmmakers or, or, you know, shows? I mean, where does your interest in this art form begin? What's the inspiration for you? And did you study? Did you kind of train in, in an academic field or did you just learn hands-on? Uh, when I was growing up in Hong Kong, I was always doing musicals as a kid, like um, outside of school. There was something called the Hong Kong Youth Arts Foundation and, and I used to do dance shows and theatre shows with them all the time. But what I did notice was I was always so excited to be in the rehearsal room. And once the show opened, look, I could I could enjoy it, but it was always quite stressful for me performing. I didn't really get a kick out of that, the way that I did listening to directors and kind of watching them. And then I went to study, I went to the University of Florida to do my undergraduate, um, but they didn't have a directing course, so I had to do an acting course. Um, I was such an annoying actor, like I'd be the worst actor to direct because I'm just really difficult with directors. <laughs> I don't agree with them. Nightmare. Um, and I did my honours in directing and then and then I went to Australia to try and get into this drama school, which is like their top drama school called NIDA for theatre. And they were like, you're a bit young for a director. And I was like, oh, God, like you've got to take me. I'm not sticking around for another year to reapply. And I said that to them and then, Luckily, they did take me and I had an amazing time learning about theatre. It was an intense program. Like when I watched Whiplash for the first time, I went, oh, my God. That's you got it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's what going to night is like. Um, but, it, you know, you learn and, 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 you know, you're made to be really tough so that when you get out there in the industry, you know, you're not going to fail in a way because you're going to be so persistent um and work really hard so the work ethic there was amazing and then worked as a theatre director for 10 years and then went back to film school so I went back to school quite late um for film in 2013 and it was after I'd gone to the Berlinale because I was directing a play in Berlin at the Schaubühne and um I went to see a short section that my friend Matt, Matt Moore won the Berlin Bear for his short film Julian and I remember watching the selects that year and I was like this is fascinating. Like the form is actually a lot more exper experimental than I'd given it credit for. So I thought I want to do that. I want to start trying to make a short film and see where I go from there. So I went to film school and then began that process. 
So you kind of had the grounding in all the right areas to form a really broad, solid foundation across the board from theatre, as you say, to TV, film, acting, directing, the full skill set. So you can put the full thing to good use. Yeah. And, you know, I don't have that story of being like a cinephile as a kid and sneaking into cinemas and all that. Like I had no interest in film and television. Like I was like hardcore. I'm going to be a theatre director. This is the pure art form that I'm completely in love with. So it's, it was actually a bit of a surprise to me to have that new inspiration to do something different. It's you know quite surprising for me as well. I heard you on a podcast talking about Spring Breakers and just the, the level of sophistication and kind of language that you had to describe cinema. I was like, she's got to be like a film student, a film major. Because you come at it from a very, I don't mean your work when I say this, I mean the way you talk about cinema from a very academic standpoint. So did you kind of blossom late in that regard and then just throw yourself straight in? Because you know your stuff, Shannon. You make me laugh because honestly, <laughs> I've, never, I've never considered myself academic right. at all when it comes to film. I always feel like I don't actually have the vocabulary sometimes that other people do when talking about cinema. So that's interesting. I think actually then maybe what it is is it's actually my um, – my theatre language, which I'm much more skilled in, but I go in terms of techniques, I'm still very heavily relying on on theatre techniques, like Brechtian techniques that I love. Um, some, also, maybe I'm not, I think sometimes I, I, I am paranoid that I'm not as film literate as other people, and so maybe actually I can start relaxing about that. <laughs> Most definitely. Well, when you, when you were talking on another show about like breaking the waves and you were saying how specific films had, had referenced, or not referenced, sorry, um, influenced and inspired specific components of, of Baby Teeth. And I was like, wow, some of these films are like such interesting points of reference and so different to your film. But then I can see how certain elements of them have, have fed in to create, obviously, what's a really unique and original film in yours. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't sweat that. It sounds to, from the outside looking in like you are schooled. Um, I want to ask you this. If you weren't growing up being inspired by film, was the Australian kind, because the 90s, obviously, independent cinematic movement, which obviously was huge in the UK and the US, but really huge in Australia as well. And I remember as a kid, some of my earliest cinematic memories, not too early from the films I'm going to mention, but stuff like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Romper Stomper, Strictly Ballroom, you know, all of these films were so internationally huge in the underground way that, you know, the Reservoir Dogs and, and those kind of movies were. It was a thriving, it seemed to be, artistic community at that time. Was, was that period in cinema on your radar then or no? Look, well, actually, when I was in the 90s, I was living in Singapore and Hong Kong, but because my dad was Australian, I definitely knew about Strictly Ballroom and I'd seen those films. Um, and I remember thinking that there was such a sort of great sense of humour in them that I really understood. And I... and I, Yeah, that's key. That's, that's what makes, I think, Australian cinema really different, even to UK, is that there's such a, a self-awareness and a kind of self-deprecating... You know, th this might be absurd and ridiculous, but let's not get too caught up in that and just enjoy it kind of attitude. Yeah, and I think, you know, now that I've spent more time sort of understanding Australian cinema, I mean, there's some of my favourite films are the sort of less known ones like Love Serenade. Um, which I'm going to write some down. Yeah. I love them. 
It's um, Love Serenade's amazing. And of course, Sweetie, which was Jane Campion's um, first film, is just so, so brilliant and unusual. And then Lantana, which was based on a, a play by um, Andrew Bavell. That one's really interesting too. There's some amazing- I watched The Boys the other day as well. I'd only just kind of discovered that recently and that was amazing. Um, and what was the other one I watched? The uh, or Animal Kingdom a bit later on, but yeah, incredible. I was watching that because of the Ben Mendelsohn link, trying to see him in more stuff. Yeah, he's incredible in that, and and Jackie Weaver, and and that's uh, David Michaud, who's part of uh, the Blue Tongue guys in Australia, who've always been making their own stuff and writing their own stuff and working together. Uh, we've got an amazing, very close knit creative community in Australia, and we all support it each is, other. It is, is it? It's a community, and it's you look out for each other and have each other's backs, and a hundred percent. And you know, anytime something's going down, you know, you call someone and go, "Oh, I need a new fight choreographer or whatever it is," and everyone helps you out. It's a really great feeling amazing do you think that's part of just the the isolation of the country geographically it's like well you know we're so far away from the hollywood industry or whatever if we don't look out for each other who's gonna kind of thing totally and i also think you know we're so far away um we have a pretty small population considering how massive our land is and also i think we, we're always paranoid that we're not good enough you know we're a bunch of convicts like still trying to prove ourselves and <laughs> completely freaked out that everyone else is making better work and we've and we've got to stand out so i think by by being so worried that we're not doing a good job we sort of accidentally create something really interesting really i mean let's just go straight in on on your film now well the the, the only one thing i did want to sort of get your take on is it seems like both the UK, so in the uk and this is a crash reference so sorry if it is but in the uk you've obviously got the bill and casualty Right. And then obviously Australia has home and away and neighbors. And it seems like every incredible actor from those countries cuts their teeth in these kind of very low budget, you know, basic soap opera type stuff. And I find that so fascinating that that's just because I think it breeds a type of actor that is so different to the American film stars. Like I think Australian and UK actors and actresses, movie stars, whatever you want to call them, there's just a different quality there, I feel to all us as brilliant as the us are in different ways it's just a very different approach and then result i find yeah i think it's about um you know those shows like coming away and neighbors those actors work their butts off when they're on those and they learn so much um camera technique and um you know the scripts come fast they've got to learn them quickly they have very little time to prep um it's a great great training ground and then I would say, you know, Australian and British actors, there's sort of a, a more of a lack of, um, I guess, vanity and celebrity status and things that I think are incredibly unhelpful when it comes to acting. You know, the whole thing is trying to be relaxed and strip it all away. And when you start worrying about things that are not really about the craft, then um, there's a there's a falseness that comes with that kind of performance. And, and also I think, you know, Australians and, and it's really hardworking and still always feel like I'm so sort of lucky to be here. There's an appreciation of it all a bit more, which I think, um, you know, just with the cult of celebrity that happens in the US is, 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 I don't know, it's different. There's a sometimes a different drive, which is, I think, you know, a bit, yeah, a bit disappointing, really. 
Yeah, I think the the thing, and it's obviously not with all of them, you can't generalize, but there's almost like a fame hunger in that culture. Whereas with what I've encountered with the UK actors that I've interviewed, I don't think I've ever interviewed any Australian actors, but I can see they're coming from the same place. It's about the love of the craft. And that's first and foremost, the driving force. And it's not, they're not interested in being famous or like, you know, a celebrity or a star. They just want to get to work and make amazing, you know, Yeah, films. but I would say that, you know, actually for me, even more than it being a thing about different countries and cultures, it's actually often about also actors that are theatre trained. So if you work with actors that are theatre trained from the US, they're the same. Yeah. They, you know, they understand the craft, they care a lot about it. Um, yeah, and, and I actually think, you know, I have worked with a lot of American actors that I, I do feel have a similar um, work ethic and desire to just disappear in roles and give it their all. So I think, yeah, I think it's a, also a theatre thing. I really, I really respect that kind of um, ability to also care about rehearsals and appreciate what they can do and to, um, to want to be... Uh, involved in all elements and not just sort of rock up on the day and, and do the lines, you know, to really feel like they've had a say on their costume and hair and everything. Yeah, the pursuit of truth, right? That's what it all is or should be. Um, yeah, I watched your film when it first came out and it just, it moved me so much. It's such a unique experience. You know, there's there's great humour in there. There's great depth. It's kind of quirky, but real realistic. You know, like you'll see a Wes Anderson film and that's very quirky, but it's not grounded in reality. Yours has a kind of quirky element, but it's so real and relatable and moving. And, and I just was so blown away by it. And I've watched it a few times since. And as a first feature film, it's an incredible statement. And I'd love to just kind of get inside your head a little bit with how you, you know, created such a, a beautiful film. First of all, with the script, let's start there. Um, what was your reaction to reading that? And did you almost know instantly this is going to be my first film when it was presented to you? Yeah, I read it um, in the middle of the day and I remember um, thinking, okay, I've just got to really set time aside because you can never get that first read back and your natural instincts and feelings, that's the only time you get to experience what the audience experiences when they watch it for the first time. And so... I thought I've got to make this, you know, um, special so that I can capture anything that comes into my mind. And um, I couldn't stop seeing visuals, which is always a really good sign for me. And also at the end, I was just absolutely destroyed. And I was destroyed because I didn't want the script to have finished. Like I was devastated that I couldn't spend more time with those characters. So I thought, oh, well, the only way I can do that is if I get this job. And I thought, I've got to get this job. Um, <laughs> And I went for an interview and I thought they were seeing a lot of other people. I didn't realise they were only seeing me at that particular moment and waiting to hear what I was thinking. But I walked into Jan Chapman's office, which uh, as you enter the piano from the piano is right there. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be sick. Um, I was so stressed. What a moment. <laughs> yeah. And um I'd taken like three beta blockers because I was really panicking and I um, sat down and, you know, talked about cof uh, coffee, <laughs> talked about um, casting, talked about um, just ideas and, and what I thought about it. And, yeah, it was interesting because then Jan left the meeting. I was there with Alex, the producer, and Jan sent her a text going, 
oh, totally, like we should get her to, to do it. This is great. And didn't realise that it popped up on the screen that was right in front of us. So I saw that I'd gotten the job. I was so excited um, because that would have been really harsh if it hadn't said that. <laughs> yeah, that's like being on Pop Idol or something, isn't it? What a way to fight. It's like, eh, eh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and then I just thought, and then I had to walk home because I was on such a high that I remember thinking, how am I making my first film with Jan Chapman? Like, I just can't believe it. So that was a real dream come true. And um, yeah, and then here we are. <laughs> I love, you've mentioned in a couple of interviews I've heard, and you mentioned it already in this one, like the work ethic is, is a huge part of it. And, you know, in this industry, and, and, you know, I say this as in like, we're in the same one, but I guess we are in terms of the entertainment industry. And you have to deal with so many knockbacks and setbacks and disappointments and it can be really 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 grueling and graining on your soul and you i think you only have longevity in this kind of a field if you love it and you do it just for the love force and first and foremost um what's been just as a very quick side note of this juncture what's been your continuing kind of driving force is it just the love and the fascination with the work and what sort of advice could you give to people in terms of trying to keep, you know, your sanity and, and your sense of hope alive in a very unforgiving industry? Yeah, I think it's about endurance, you know, like you were saying. It's not, you've got to see it as an entire career. You know, there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. And, and you know, that's why when those beautiful highs are happening, like, for this, you know, it's like you're at Venice or getting nominated for a BAFTA. I'm like, far out. Those are such exciting, incredible goals that, you know, you only kind of dream of hitting. But then you also can't get too excited because who knows what's going to be your life in a year's time. And so I think that you've just always got to say to yourself, I'm going to create the work that I want to see and that I want to make. And I just have to hope that people are going to have a good experience when they watch it, but that's not always going to be the case. Like in my theatre life, some of my favourite productions, they did really well, but they weren't as revered as, say, the ones that I got awards for. And you go, um, you can't predict any of this stuff and you just have to stay true to um, to what you want to make. But for me, the, the drive is the people that I work with. I just love my heads of departments. Um, I'm with these incredible artists all day, every day that inspire me so much and... I would feel so sad if I wasn't allowed anymore to go to work and spend my time with them. You know, I think it would kill me. So that's the drive. It's like, if I don't keep doing this, firstly, I have no other skill set. So it's <laughs> I'm sure you do as a director. There's a hell of a lot of applicable skills there, but you don't want to apply them to anything else other than this thing that you love. Yeah. And I've been obsessive since the age of 17. I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And my drama teachers at school used to say, you're probably a director because um, I'm always stepping back and I always wanted to be on the other side. And I just, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't ever think of doing anything else. I've never considered another kind of job, but, but, you know, there's been years and years where I, I taught um, acting and, and found so many things to subsidize my income because I couldn't make a living as a theatre director. You just can't in Australia. It's impossible no matter how many shows you do. And um you know, I've done things like paint Cirque du Soleil, publicity on floors, you know, millions of different little jobs. And I go, it didn't matter because I knew that no matter what, I was going to have to keep directing. Whether other people gave me big money jobs to do that or not, I was going to keep doing it. 
Yeah, it's that other thing as well, isn't it? Of it's not you. You refer to it as a career in a conversation like this, but in your heart, it's not. In your heart, it's just your life, and it's what you're always going to do because that's what whether you're born to do it or you know you over time discover that's want what you want to do. It's going to be what you do forever, and it isn't a gig or a job. It is you know it's your being, it's yeah. your purpose in life, right? Yeah. I get that wholeheartedly. Another thing that I love about you, and I heard you say this in one podcast, which was like, don't always take, and this is in a professional context before anybody gets offended, don't always take no for an answer. I love that because a little bit of cheekiness goes a long way, doesn't it? Just that, or the worst they can say is no, so just ask and find out. And if they do say no, maybe don't accept that as the final answer. Yeah, it was interesting. I used to get told no in the theatre world a lot. Um, you know, like, no, Shannon, you're the kind of, you know, new modern director. You don't do the big classics. You don't do this. And as soon as people go, you don't do that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can. Just wait. So I remember I got this money to um, do kind of any sort of project I wanted. And I thought, I'm going to do an opera. Never been into opera in my life. But I lo- I do love the music and I love the idea of it. But when I've gone to opera, I found it really kind of just cold and not really my thing. So I did it at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and it was experiential and the audience got to eat and go through the gallery at night and then they entered hell and it was Orfeo and Eridice and it was such a fun experience to, to explore something and to, to say, no, here's classical work and I can pull it off. And I think, you know, the great thing is when people say no to you, <laughs> or at least for me, it makes me go, yeah, I can. What are you talking about? And I, I feel like I have to prove them wrong. Yeah. yeah. Do you like punk rock? Is that a music that's had an impact on your life? Like that's my favorite music in the world. It's who I am in my heart and it drives everything that I do. And it's not just a form of music, but I find that a lot of people who like that music and grew up on that music, that attitude and ethos and, you know, everything it applies to, to the way you conduct yourself in the world. Is that a part of your character or am i off the mark there you know that's funny i'm not into punk rock but a lot of people call me like they they feel like i'm a bit of a punk in the way that i operate but you know what you are i don't know <laughs> it's funny i've met I, yeah and i've always gone i wonder exactly what that kind of yeah refers to but i do i even just the I'm, whole kind of um the, the the diy independent spirit for sure um, the creativity of let's we've we've got the cast we've got the team we've got the tools let's get to work the kind of the hustle the drive um, and just on a basic level I'd noticed you had the stranglers in in baby teeth so I was like oh maybe she is <laughs> look I, yeah I'm sort of I'm pretty out there and eclectic with my taste in music but that's just because I think I've grown up in so many places um, but I do you know I do like punk rock and the the version that you have in the film is a really interesting who's it by cover. Um, it's by the Zephyr Quartet, who are an Adelaide group. And um, so my editor, Steve Evans, and my cinematographer, Andy Comis, we all went to WOM Adelaide, um, so the WOMAD that they do up there. And it was amazing because um, they have incredible musicians from all over the world and it's at the Botanical Gardens. And we saw the Zephyr Quartet playing and we went purposely to, like, source music for Baby Teeth as well. And we saw them and they didn't play that in it. And it just happened to be later on when we were cutting stuff. I said, gosh, I wonder what covers they've done or if, you know. And then we saw that and we went, oh, my God, it's perfect. So. Because um, it's golden brown, right? I'm 
it yeah. is and obviously you know whether that song is or isn't about heroin um you know addiction is at the key of your film and i think that's another thing that for me makes the spirit of your film very punk rock in its treatment of these characters is it doesn't stigmatize or judge um you know or cast any kind of negative projections onto people who deal with these things you know it treats them as as human beings which they are um with all the qualities and you know strengths as well as flaws that sober people as well as addicts have um and i found it so refreshing in that way because so few films deal with these kind of topics in such a real way you know it's like the addict is is often just traditionally the addict and they're defined by that and that alone whereas your movie everybody has different degrees of addiction but that's just one you know characteristic in many that make them these amazing compelling characters yeah and i think you know um so many people but particularly us in the arts you know we know lots of people who are um addicts and there's you know as many facets to them as there are to anyone else like it's like what you can't just call them you know one one thing or, or view them in that way and often they're really incredibly entertaining people um and I think you know Rita always said Rita Carnier who wrote it you know it's no more a, a a story about a girl with cancer than it is about somebody who plays the violin. And so I took the same approach with each of them, you know, um, and it, and it not just being about addiction and about showing, you know, the beautiful side to these people as well and also trying to really understand why they are addicts. And I, I met with a, a beautiful man who works um, in addiction and, and rehabilitation. And, and every time I talk about the characters, he's like, who cares? Who cares what he's on? It's not about what he's on. He's like, it's about why he is behaving this way and why he's chosen to be taking what drugs he's taking. And so um, I just loved that approach actually. And so that's what we did. I mean, yes, we had to really break down at each moment what Moses might be on. Um, and what what Henry was doing in it and all of that, but but that's not the heart of who those people are. Yeah, it was one of the many things that really hit me in the heartstrings about it. The other is just the family dynamic, and as somebody from a very dysfunctional family, I loved the again just like presentation of you know there's adultery going on and there's you know deceit and betrayal and doubt and and grief and pain and all these things, but there's still love that binds them all together uh, and the scene that i just found so well there's a couple of like wow real standout scenes for me but the birthday scene was one you know where there's like the neighbor that he's had the thing with is there and and the piano teacher who's clearly had the the thing with with the mother and they're all there together in celebration of this girl's life because they know that it's fleeting and the clock's ticking and it's almost like all of those like pet well not petty differences but you know what i mean the the, the friction and the things that have divided them or, you know, thrown their world into a bit of disarray is pushed to the side and they're just there for the moment. It's such a beautiful scene. Tell me about shooting that one. Yeah, um, it was pretty great because uh, the actor who plays Gidon, Eugene Gilfeder, he plays that music. Like he's such an incredible musician and um, our composer Amanda Brown had come up with that version and he was just banging it out and, um Ben and Toby were um just improvising making the fajitas and everything like that and Ben actually would not stop um singing this ridiculous song and about 
he was calling it fajitas instead of fajitas as a joke. <laughs> and, it, and Toby couldn't stop laughing. And he kept going. And it was just one of those moments where we'd been working together for about three weeks now shooting and everybody was so relaxed with each other. And it just felt, it felt like we were all at that party together. It was beautiful. And um, then sitting down and having Toby get up and dance was hilarious. Um, and he, he was, he's such a charming human, but um, he was a bit nervous. And so Ben does this thing when he senses people are nervous on set and he plays his own music all the time. So there was like, R&B and all this stuff going on. And then he'd turn it off and then Toby would get up and dance. And we just kept it so free and flowing and let them improvise. That's the only bit actually where we improvised a little bit. Um, and I wanted them to feel incredibly uh, not focused on the moment that was to come next, which was when um, Anna and Miller play their duet together, which was always going to be a very moving but sad moment and so I didn't want to play it beforehand I wanted Ben and all of them to be watching it for the first time yeah when they began to do it so they hardly rehearsed it in front of us and then and then what you're seeing is them watching them play together for the first time so I think as much as you know you can set up an environment where the actors can really feel like they're those characters seeing that for the first time and reacting that's you know the dream yeah it's the truth isn't it it's it's such an incredible scene and obviously you know it kind of ends with new life and it's that circle of life moment and it's making me well up a little bit now so you have to excuse me <laughs> um i'd love to get I'm into the... about that wait even even saying that you know i've forgotten so eugene um who plays get on he i ran into him because we went to the premiere up in um up in the, uh brisbane and he said to me oh um how's that you know, gorgeous actress, Emily, did she have her baby? And I went, you know, I was like, Eugene, she wasn't really pregnant. And even he thought she was pregnant, you know, it was like, that High praise. brilliant, you know? Yeah, it was very funny. That's, in <laughs> that's incredible. Did you do much bonding exercises ahead of shooting? Are you somebody that works in that way? Obviously, I know this is your first feature, but was that something you were keen to do from the theatre, I guess, background as, was bring to this? And, and was that something that you did with the key cast members who spent time ahead of shooting, just doing various exercises and yeah look we had such a short rehearsal time but what I tend to do is I I spend a lot of time with them I always say to them it's really important to get together outside of our workspace and spend time together so I really encourage that and Ben would often organize all of them to get together and like run lines a lot so that they could feel really relaxed about that so yeah for the time we had we definitely spent it together as much as we could um and I always think that helps, but I think it's really important to let actors go off and do that on their own. As a director, you don't need to be monitoring that. You don't need to be overseeing it. They need to feel free and not like they're constantly having to play and perform in front of you. Was the mood on set very lighthearted and elevated or did it chop and change? Because, you know, obviously if, if certain scenes are very, very heavy, you know, I'm always interested whether it's it's all about, I guess, the mood that the, the director creates on set. But do you want the mood on set to reflect what the scene's going to be, or do you have to keep things balanced? What What's your general approach to getting to the truth of the scene and 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 kind of operating with a general mood on set? 
I think you have to assess it because everyone's different. Every actor's different and then every scene's different. Um, I, for example, when we're going to do the beach scene, and I'm always very wary of scenes where the actors are going to put a lot of pressure on themselves, and I knew this would be one of them. So, you know, Ben was playing Chuck Ademus and the pliers tease me and, like, dancing with the lights. It was hilarious. And I remember thinking, okay, that's good because that's what they need right now before they go into this heavy scene. And then the scene where... Um, they find Miller um, when she's passed. I wanted to keep that quite somber in a sense that I, I kept Eliza from everyone all day. They didn't see her. And then we put makeup on her that looked like she had passed away. And uh, the first time Ben walked in the room and Essie, they hadn't seen her yet that day. And I hid a camera in the second room where she was and played them both at the same time so they could hear each other. So when both of them are mourning, they can hear the noise of the other one and I knew that that would help them react um, to each other. And that was harrowing. Like the crew, all of us were really beside ourselves kind of watching that. But, um, but you know, I knew it's what they needed to really get there and go there. But having said that, the second, you know, earlier in that scene, um, they're joking about that cake that they're eating that's disgusting and all that plays out in the same run so um yeah setting up the correct environment and and knowing what your different actors need is is essential ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, and it's obviously a very, I don't know whether exciting is the right word, but I, I would imagine it's quite an exciting role to be the, you know, the conductor of that. But it's also there's a lot of pressure as well right so what i'd be really interested to know is when actors are investing so much emotions in the parts that they're playing and obviously they need to do their wind down time and you know ride that low and what do you do to 
replenish your wealth when when you're obviously in control and you have to kind of like put up i guess not a brave face but you know i mean like a united front of strength because if you fall apart then everybody's like well what are we doing here but there must be moments when you've been really you know moved in a good way but still drained by you know day's work on the set what do you like to do when you get offset to just recharge yeah look i've always have a bath at night so that i can really like just let my body kind of um relax and and it's very hard to turn your brain off in the evenings when you've been directing all day i I find the adrenaline is so intense that um yeah i think you have to find ways to to calm your nervous system during the day if it's a bit of a stressful day i'll often go have a quick 15 minute nap in the costume um trailer you you can do that can you You can just like hit the nap time and then drift straight off because i'd be like (laughs) (laughs) wired as you say because that adrenaline you know i i know from hosting big shows on stage and being in front of live crowds in front of thousands of people like that's a a wave that is hard to come down from it's great it's great but it's like yeah it takes a long time to settle back into normality quote unquote totally and then I also think you know sometimes you just need a big cry like sometimes I come home at night and I just have to have a big cry and it's not like everything's going wrong or anything it's just it is it's pure exhaustion or it's just sort of joy that you've even managed to complete the day you know um I'm Jess Hobbs who's an amazing um New Zealand director who lives here now and she does the crown um she taught me at film school and, and, you know, she used to say, don't be afraid of your emotions. She said, if you cry on set because you've watched something really powerful, that's fine. You know, and she also used to say, don't, you know, like you were saying today, stop being so paranoid about not knowing technical language. She said, because it's all about, you know, you're going to be a performance driven director and just own that. And I think, um, you know, it's, it is about if you're asking your actors to be themselves and to open up and to give you everything they've got, you have to be doing the same thing and they have to know that they can trust you. And when you tell them that something's good or something's not working, that they know that you're you're right and, and let's either fix it together or you can move on to the next take. They've got to be able to trust you. I see directors often kind of saying, oh, that's excellent, that's excellent after every take. And I'm like, this is good for day one. They'll eat you for breakfast in a week's time when they don't believe you when you say that that's great work. Like, just wait, it's going to come back. Yeah, and what you just mentioned there is really interesting. Like, a little bit of tears on set might actually be a good incentive for your cast because they're like, oh, well, if it's affecting Shannon and she's here every day with us, we're on to the right track here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's that fine line because also it's just it's completely not about you in that moment. So often if I do cry, I quickly get up, I wipe my tears and I can keep talking to them and directing, you know, and you go, it's also not, you know, you never want to be indulgent in any of those moments because you also want them, no matter what state they're in, to be able to keep going. You don't want them to overanalyze anything, you know. And um, Yeah, you're like a fly on the wall, aren't you? But then you're also right in the center of it. You're kind of trying to exist in those two spaces simultaneously. Yeah. There's so many subtleties and nuance. I just think it's the most fascinating gig in the world, directing. I find it infinitely fascinating. And I I love cinema. Obviously, I don't have the skill set to do it, but I just think I'd never be able to stop thinking. I would just be thinking all the time about everything, every like eventuality. Are you a big overthinker? Or are you able to, when you finish work, are you able to relax, unwind, switch off, enjoy family time? 
I mean, I think I'm I'm always someone who uh, I don't believe in this idea where people talk about work-life balance. I go, my work is my life and the people in my work life are my greatest friends, you know, and my daughter has grown up in this world. You know, she she loves coming to set because it's all about the catering. That's all she cares about, you know, and her (laughs) view of sort of what... (laughs) what my work is, is is quite different. She's so used to meeting actors and hanging out with them and she lives a very creative life as a result. But I think, you know, I don't need to switch off in a way because she's as involved in it and loves it too, you know. And um, I think you do need to find time though, of course, to have holidays and to give yourself um, headspace. I don't overthink anymore because now I can really trust my instincts but yeah, you definitely go through a stage of, of of overthinking everything, and then you learn that you you know you can just show up, and your ideas will flow. Do you do therapy or anything like that yourself? You, yeah, because that that must you know not only be applicable in, in a positive way to your personal life, but to the work that you do. It must make you a better director, right? To be in touch with all of those emotions and thoughts. And I mean, I think anyone in any leadership role should have to go to therapy regularly because you know it's so important. So much of directing is people management, and and people management in front, and then ten times more people management behind the camera. You know, so props, costume, budget, yeah, all of it, yeah, all of it. You know, and I and you go, you need to have um someone to talk to, 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 to think about, you know, how you're managing your relationships with everyone and, um, yeah, just how to do better, you know, all the time. And, and, a, and a beautiful space to then finally also talk about, yeah, the finer details of, you know, your really intimate relationships. And I think um, there's, I mean, yeah, people in our field, we love therapy, you know. Yeah, this is, this is why I do this show. It's, it's all just, I mean, for me, conversation is the greatest thing in the world um and i love it so much and it's just so inspiring to talk to people about the things that inspire them um and then you know then the listeners hear it and they're inspired and it's you know it's it's i look at it as storytelling it's just a different version of um that beach scene that rips my heart out in the best possible way every time it's so so well done it's such a delicate moment when she asks her father can you look after you know, you look after Moses when I'm gone. That that in that moment, it's like, oh my god, powerful, powerful stuff. Yeah, and amazing. You know, what I really wanted was this film to be um, a, a sort of a beautiful gift to all those um, people who have died early, who really wanted to be able to say what they wanted at the end there, and and could or couldn't have that because so much of the story is about listen listen to that person that is actually in that place because so often when younger people are dying we don't want to believe that and even the medical industry doesn't want to believe it and they'll continue to keep them um on types of medication right until the end even though it means their quality of life is not great um towards the end of their life and and miller's really saying what she wants you know and I I just thought that was such a powerful message in that story to to hold space for people. Oh, I'm going to get emotional. 
I'm right there with you. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, just to, to, to honour those young people and to listen to their voice. I feel like so often in my life, I hear people talk about younger people in a bit of a derogatory way. And in my life, they've always been the most intelligent and, and most inspiring. Yeah, and often their perspective is, you know, people say like experience and wisdom and these things come from age, but often you can get corrupted over time, right? And it can become oversaturated. And there's something about the purity of a viewpoint that you hold in your adolescent years, you know, before the world shaped you in good and bad ways. It's it's more real in a way, isn't it? Because it's just like it's unfiltered. It's pure. Yeah, and they push they push you to answer you know questions that you've sort of given up on in many ways and I think they also um you know they do they have a punk energy and there's like an electricity to how they operate in the world it's so palpable and I think so exciting to be around that um yeah I really want to make sure as well that the film captured that that feeling that you have when you're in that age group um and I saw a play by a Belgium company called Entourage Good, who did a production called Once and For All, We'll Tell You Who We Are, So Shut Up and Listen. It was all with teenagers. And I remember at the end of that show, I just want to stand up and scream and go, yes, that's what it felt like to be 16 and 17 and have such big, bold and beautiful ideas about the world and be such a mess at the same time. And, and uh, yeah, I really wanted Moses and, and Miller to sort of capture that, that vibe. You nailed it. It's 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 a truly moving, wonderful, unique film. I loved it so much. Um, just a couple more questions, if you don't mind, Chan. If you've got time about the movie, and then I'll hopefully maybe tease what's coming up in your life, and then I'll let you get on with your day. But I wanted to know about the the relationships, your point of view on these relationships between Moses and his mum, and then Moses and Anna, because those two for me are kind of different versions of you know, the kind of maternal and, and adolescent boy dynamics. Um, and obviously you don't really get any insight at all into his mum and who she is and why she is really, you know, removed and just keeps him at arm's length. Obviously you can kind of see it's because of his choices in life and whatever. But first of all, him and his mum, how did you see that relationship and what was your inspiration when you were approaching that? Well, when I talked to this um, friend of mine who works um, in, in rehabilitation, um, he was saying when he read the script, he felt that it was quite clear that, you know, the, the mo mother, Moses's mother, had once the parents had split, had turned Moses basically into her new husband in the sense that she wanted him to take that role. She needed him as um, the person that she could rely on in a way that was unhealthy, you know, rather than just letting him be her son. And so when he starts to get old enough to want to break out and have his own um, authority and personality, she starts to reject him, which is where his addiction starts to come into play. And then watching his brother become the new little prince in the family um, is really disturbing for him. And so also, you know, we tried to show that as well through um, her obsession with the Bichons and putting so much love and care um, and grooming into these animals. Um, but, but interestingly, also keeping them in cages as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so um, that was, I thought, you know, for, for such a short amount of time that she's on screen, that actress Georgina Symes, who plays his mother, I just thought did an amazing job just capturing that. 
Yeah, because um, no dialogue as well, right? She doesn't have a word. Doesn't have a word, yeah. And um, then with Because uh, with, with Moses and Anna, I couldn't work out, and this is why I loved it so much, it was so layered and nuanced, but I just couldn't work out whether she hated him and resented him or whether she cared for him and, and really wanted to love him in a way, but then perhaps couldn't because obviously everything she was dealing with that dynamic between those two for me was just maybe the most interesting in the whole film because it was so complicated and there was so much going on. And that moment where they come together in that scene, it's actually my favorite scene, um, sleep talking, which is when he's lying on the couch and he's high, but he's appreciating the quality. (laughs) the smell of her laundry and you know for for someone who's given up her career at this stage and been putting all her effort into this family and their daughter him appreciating that really softens her for a moment and also she's on her own meds he's high and they come together in this beautiful moment where they're both on the same wavelength and they're able to He's able to reminisce with her about what Miller was like when she was younger and she's able to genuinely ask him how is he okay and does his mother know where she is and it's like they're in this haze of understanding for a short period of time but it's a really beautiful quiet moment and when I read that scene I had always liked it but it was one of those ones that just became extra special on the day when we were shooting it and I thought wow this is amazing and they took their time and you know I think Essie and Toby just had a very natural connection as well which you can just feel in that yeah you can just see it as well as a viewer there's great chemistry there I mean there's great chemistry between all the cast but particularly those two it's kind of like supercharged and especially at the end when she's obviously you know livid and mortified at the same time that he was the last person that got to you know, talk with her and and, and see her and hold her and stuff. And she's obviously so angry, but then they sort of have that embrace at the end as well. Yeah, and there's no trickery in any of that, you know. Um, We said, you know, are you both going to be okay if you just go for it and see where it goes? And, you know, Toby's really getting hit by Essie quite hard and she's really losing it. And it's just, um, it's, it's, you know, really impressive to watch them just let themselves really be alive in in such a traumatic moment i love the handheld camera work there's a lot of that that gives it a really you know intimate feel there's a super unique mood and tone to the whole film you know i feel like every film there's obviously like things that you see like there's the set design there's the soundtrack the cast etc but there's always like that kind of elusive thing for me of like the tone and the mood which The films that I love the most are the ones that stand alone, you know, like for me, just pulling random names out of the hat, like a Harold and Maud, um, you know, or I don't know. Well, there's just one right there. But I mean, these films that are quite unlike any other and exist almost in their own little universe. Tonally, did you have any, apart from the script which you're working off and the cast that you're working with, did you have any tonal guidelines? No, it's interesting that you say that because I think the only way that you can create a unique tone is to actually go, I've, I've not seen this before. I don't know what no it is. Influence. Yeah. So I always hate that, like when you're doing TV in particular, you know, or, and film, you know, they're like, so what is it like? Is it like this meets this? And it's like, as soon as you start defining that, then it is that thing. You know, I go, ah. You know, we always knew this was totally unique because that's Rita is like that in her writing. And it was just how we were going to definitely nail that. 
you know, we had rules with ourselves, you know, we were always going to try and make every frame have this mix of tragedy and comedy in it. So if it was a heavier scene, we always had like a costume element or something that was playing against that. Um, so we talked about that a lot. I mean, Andy Commerce, the cinematographer, is extraordinary. And he and I, you know, we planned lots of it. And then at the same time, um, he's very good at kinetically uh, connecting to the, the actors. So, um, for example, when um, uh, Henry is over at the neighbor's house and the light bulb explodes and he falls over and, and then he's sitting and looking out the window and, and reflecting on his own child. And, and in that moment, he's feeling quite sad. But my idea was always, and then we're going to get that weird, crazy octopus picture that of the kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And we actually only had like two takes for that because we were running out of time in the day. So our original idea of how we we're going to shoot it ended up just Andy flying the camera around as fast as he could. And yet, as soon as Ben sat, straight away Andy went to that that position that he knew I was looking for because I wanted that mix of the comedy and the tragedy. And I think, um, you know, it's wonderful when you find someone that you can be so in sync with like that, like Andy and I are. But with the, yeah, camera, we were often also pushing ourselves, you know. Where is the drama? Where is the moment? Who should we be on? Particularly that scene where Miller confronts the whole family and they're all running out towards her, explaining that, yes, they have all been lying to her. Um, oh, every take of that's different, you know? And so we knew, like, oh, how are we going to cut it together? It's like, oh, I don't know. We'll deal with that later. But find it, find it, keep moving with with where the energy is. So, yeah. Yeah, it's obviously it's kind of like an independent film, but it doesn't feel low budget. It feels, you know, the production, just there's a sheen, you know, it has a glow and a look that it doesn't make it feel gritty. That's what I love about it. Although it's a very simplistic setting, you, you bring it to life in such a beautiful way visually. Um, and yeah, I mean, I could tell you all day about how much I love the film. Final thing I want to mention is just Eliza because she's just such, I mean, she's the heart and soul of obviously the whole piece. Um, that performance is incredible. What was it like just creating that with her and working with her as a, as a you know a, a woman and as a, a performer and, and everything? Because she's she's just truly amazing. Yeah, Eliza has just one of those faces and um, is a the kind of performer that's just so scary because she's so good, like her range is so extraordinary that just even the slightest subtlest shift in look and facial expression can create something so different and so it's almost with the lines about pulling things back because um she could almost seem like a hundred different people in one moment but that was the beautiful thing with her it's like we all gonna we're gonna craft who miller is and miller is in transition from the minute you meet her anyway um pretty much as soon as you know, Moses literally collides into her life. Um, she's on a rapid journey of um, discovering who she wants to be before she dies. And, um, you know, she's having the biggest existential crisis of anyone's life. And so I, I think because she's so wise for her age as well, um, she naturally embodies this sense of I am the most mature adult in the room. I mean, you feel like that when you're around her, you feel. Do you really? Love yeah. It. She's just really insightful. And, um, you know, she learned the violin in like four weeks. Um, 
you know, and she'd just come off Little Women where she'd learned the piano in like three weeks. You know, what, you know, it's just, she's very smart. She's brilliant in that too. She's so good in that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think she's going to be one of these people that um, we will always continue to be amazed by what she can do. And I think, um, you know, I, I just thought her interpretation of Miller was, you know, punk and uh, just so striking and so um, connected. She was she was the person that isn't on medication. I mean, she is because she's got medication for illness, but she is the most lucid person in this story and, and you know, the truth teller and yet she's still so childlike and alive and playful, you know, and I think having all of that is um, is such a massive ask. This was her first leading role in a film and, yeah, she really, she really held her own. Yeah, she's surrounded by super talent and she just owns it, owns mm. it, owns it. So I want to see more work from you, Shannon, because this was just one of the best films I've ever seen. Will you do more? Are you making anything at the moment in the feature film area what's going on with you what are your plans and anything you'd like to share yeah look i'm definitely in uh tv land for a little while um with the power and then i'm really looking for my next film i don't have it yet i'm desperate to find one um because i would love to sink my my teeth into a film after this um you know run of television so you know, it just, but it needs to, you need, it's like divine intervention. It's got to land in your lap, you know. <laughs> so there's no other way you can't, when, when I don't write work, I just can't. But you're super open, like you're there, you're ready to receive the gift from the universe and you'll, you'll definitely know it when it arrives. And it can be any genre, you know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm genre agnostic. I don't know what I want to do next. It's almost like, uh, even with my theatre work, everything was so different um because it just it's just has to feel like something i haven't seen before are you proud of baby teeth you should be oh that's I, honestly i should just do interviews with you all the time it's such a great ego boost um <laughs> i am i am incredibly proud of it because i was really lucky to have producers that genuinely let me have a director's cut and i think you know that doesn't happen a lot and first time as well that's that's a, a real statement of trust isn't it yeah it's extraordinary and i think that's how you get really authentic original work when too many people haven't you know gotten their fingers on it yeah well congratulations and and thank you like it, it moved me in such a way that it's a film that will always stay with me and yeah it just made me feel more connected to my family and, and more connected to the human experience um, and so few, you know, so I'm going to start well enough again. So few films do that, you know, so many entertain and distract and, and enlighten, but yours truly moved. And I, I urge everybody who's listening to this, if they haven't, to go and check it out. And um, I, I hope that we can reconvene down the road and talk more when there's another amazing, you know, feature film out there in the world. And I can't wait to see what, whatever it is, what it's going to be. Thank you so much for a, a lovely, lovely talk, Shannon. It's been great. Thanks for having me. That was really lovely. When we're out in the moonlight, 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 